Well, 2 Corinthians 11 is where we will be today. And I think what I'll do is go ahead and open with a prayer and then we will get into the text. Let's pray once again together. Father, again, we come to you thankful because of the finished work of Christ that we can stand on Christ, our solid rock, that His work on Calvary, His resurrection is the firm foundation that we need. It's the church's one foundation, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God, we ask that today as we look into your word, that your spirit would do a mighty work in us, that we would be drawn nearer to you and to truth, that we would be changed because of the time we spend in your word today. Lord, we ask together that I would not get in the way of your word, but that your word would be just clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the year 2023 is a weird time to be alive. Those of you who have been around a while, perhaps if someone would have asked you 30, 40, 50 years ago what the year 2023 would look like, uh, you would have all kinds of speculations, but probably it wouldn't look like this, right? This is just strange, this world we're living in. And one of the many strange things that is happening in our world today is the existence of some of the youngest people among us as influencers. You heard this title, influencer. People are like making six-figure incomes in their early 20s as influencers. You know, those people who are full of wisdom. <laughs> They're influencing the world. And perhaps it's not the strange, maybe not the strangest part is that they exist as influencers, but the strangest part is that people are actually influenced by them. I, I just, I think it's so, so bizarre. But even though that's a part of our world today in the internet age, influencers have actually been around for a very long time, haven't they? And not just young people, but older people. Not just wise people, but also foolish people. Not just holy people, but evil and wicked people. The existence of influencers has been around for a very long time. And what we are encountering in Corinth is that there are some bad actors who are truly influencing that church, who are able to influence the believers in the church with their wicked ways. Paul, of course, as an apostle of Christ, one who was called by God, he loved Corinth. He loved the Corinthians. He had a very deep and sincere love for them, and he desired quite deeply to be their main influencer. That was his desire. But there are these influencers in Corinth who are actually influencing them, and they did not love Paul. In fact, they didn't love the church. They loved themselves. And they were teaching some dangerous things that we're going to learn today. And so as Paul continues to deal with these false apostles, these false teachers in Corinth, what we're going to see here starting in chapter 11 is that rhetoric that he's using is getting turned up even more. We've seen him hinting here and there more and more, making little comments here and there about these false apostles. But today the rhetoric gets turned up to even a new level. Let's start in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul writes, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Well, Paul cared for these people so deeply. He was the one who loved them in the truth, and he had actually many roles in his relationship with them. If you have your notes with you, you can see those five roles outlined that we'll go through. As Paul <laughs> continues to remind them of who he is in his relationship with them. Paul, of course, was their spiritual father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, so the other letter that we have preserved that was written to them, in 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul said, "'For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers.'" For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. 
So the first thing that we can understand about the role that Paul had in their lives is that he was their spiritual father. Paul was the one who led them to the Lord. He was there used by God to plant a church in that pagan city there in Greece. And because he was used as the first person to lead them to Jesus Christ, he has that special role in their lives. Even though they weren't always recognizing that, they weren't always acknowledging him as their spiritual father, still that's the case. And I think it's important that we consider our spiritual fathers. All of us have spiritual fathers to one degree or another, especially those who were instrumental in leading us to the Lord initially. Well, he was that for the Corinthians. He was their spiritual father. But secondly, we see he was also their zealous cheerleader. Look in chapter, uh, verse 2 rather, of chapter 11, where Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He is zealous for them, you could say. But jealousy is also a very fair translation. Paul wanted the best for them with a godly zeal. He had this, this enthusiasm for them and a true, sincere jealousy for their spiritual health. There is such a good thing as good jealousy. Some of us may not have heard that before. There is such a thing as good jealousy. I think we all know the bad jealousy where you're coveting what somebody else has. But there's a good and godly jealousy, and we find out about it all the way back toward the front of the Bible. In Exodus 20, when God is giving the Ten Commandments to Israel, listen to how he phrases this commandment, starting in verse 4 of Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God has jealousy. It's a good jealousy, a desire for His people. Can you imagine if God wasn't jealous for us with a godly jealousy? Where He just thought, well, you know, if I keep them, I keep them. If I lose them, I lose them. I don't care. That would be a tragedy. There is such a thing as good and godly jealousy, and God has that for His people. He always has. And it's good for the apostles that we read from in the New Testament that they would have a jealousy for the churches that God used them to plant. Paul had a godly jealousy for the Corinthians. And what this shows us is that Paul isn't writing this letter and going through all this painstaking effort with them for his own glory. Paul's not doing all this for the sake of his ego, but he's doing this for God. His jealousy is not a selfish jealousy, but a godly jealousy. There are others in the Bible who had godly jealousy. Maybe you'll remember Phineas back in the book of Numbers. Phineas had God's jealousy, the text says, and that led him to act pretty strongly. You might want to read Numbers 25 sometime if you don't know what I'm talking about. David, too, had a godly jealousy. David wrote in Psalm 69, he said, zeal for your house, O Lord, has consumed me. He had this great zeal for the Lord. He had God's jealousy. Paul, of course, was himself a very jealous guy before his conversion. How did Paul show his zeal before he was converted? Well, he was zealous for the law. He was zealous for his nation of Israel. And he went around killing Christians who were a threat to Israel the way he saw it. Well, now his zeal hasn't left him. His jealousy hasn't left him. It's just been redeemed. He has a godly jealousy, no longer in violence, but in love. Paul, thirdly, was their faithful betrother. Not only was he their spiritual father, their zealous cheerleader, but he was their faithful betrother. The second half of verse 2 explains this, where he says, For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. The ancient engagement process was quite different from what it is today. Today we have the ring that costs like three years' salary or whatever it is that people buy, and, uh, you know, it's all about the flash that you can have during the engagement where you've got, you know, actors that were hiding in the trees, they come swinging out, and there are fireworks everywhere, and, you know, it's this big production. And then, uh, you know, of course, in much of society today, 
uh, the engagement doesn't really mean a whole lot because usually people are already living together and they continue living together and then marriage is just something that maybe they get around to later. Well, in Paul's day, something that was just quite a bit different is that many of the marriages involved the parents and the fathers would be involved, the fathers of both the bride and the groom, and they would talk about how this would work. There would be arrangements that were made. And the engagement or the betrothal was actually kind of like an official ceremony. They would make vows to one another. They would make promises to one another. And it would set up up to a year long where they wouldn't be consummating the marriage, but they would still on paper be considered as married. It would take an an actual certificate of divorce to undo the betrothal that took place. And so they were truly given to one another at that ceremony but the, the bride would go to live with her father, usually, as the husband would go and make arrangements. And when everything was ready, he would come back, he would get his bride, they would consummate the marriage, and they would begin living together. So you can imagine the punch of that illustration as Paul says, I betrothed you, O Corinthians, to one husband. He's really drawing on that spiritual father model here, isn't he? As their father, he betrothed them to Jesus Christ. And where is Jesus Christ? Well, he has gone to prepare a place for us, hasn't he? He has gone to prepare a place. And one day he's coming back for his bride that we may go to the father's house with him. But in the meantime, as we wait for that day, for the bridegroom to return, it's the bride's job to keep herself pure. Imagine the scandal if a bride who was betrothed to a man who was living in her father's house defiled herself by catting around, by starting a relationship with some other man. And imagine what the husband would think when he returned and found that out. Paul here is saying, I betrothed you to Jesus Christ and I'm awaiting that great day And and I can just imagine in Paul's mind's eye, he was thinking about the day when we'll be caught up together with the Lord in the air and he can present the Corinthians to Jesus Christ and say, she's yours. What an amazing day that will be. And he's calling them to think about that, that they would consider the way they live their life now, that they would be purely devoted to him alone. Not devoted to anyone else, no other husband, but Jesus He says that you would be a pure virgin. You'd be presented as a pure virgin. Paul cared about the church's purity. We know that they had many behavioral impurities. We read a lot about them in the first letter to the Corinthians, where they were doing all sorts of things that they needed to modify as far as their behavior goes. But there was also doctrinal impurity that existed in Corinth that we're about to read about in a few moments. He cared about the church's purity, that they would be devoted to the bridegroom. The Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, he said this about Jesus' coming, "'Little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming.'" Why would any of us shrink away in shame at His coming? If we have not been purely devoted to Jesus Christ, there will be shame associated with that at his return. It's a sobering truth, isn't it? Well, not only was Paul their spiritual father, their zealous cheerleader, their faithful betrother, we also read in verse 5, he was their true apostle. Let's read verses 5 and 6 together. Skip down to verse 5. It says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Paul was the true apostle sent to the Corinthians. You'll see in verse 5, he says he's not inferior to the most eminent apostles. He's not talking about the 12 whom Jesus chose. He's not talking, referring back to Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and all of those guys. He's here referring to those so-called apostles, those ones who walk into a room and say, I am the eminent apostle. Listen to me. Paul says, I'm not inferior to those guys. I don't need to listen to those guys. I am a true apostle of Jesus Christ, 
And we read about in Paul's life, actually, that he was taught directly by Jesus himself. But look at how Paul started this letter. Go back with me to the very first verse of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1.1, look at how Paul words this. When he introduces the letter with his name, he gives himself a specific title. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. There are other places where he clarifies and he says, not by the will of man. He's an apostle by the will of God. That's a true apostle. That's truly someone who can walk in and have spiritual authority. That's someone who has the ability, the God-given supernatural ability to write Scripture and to issue the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I'm not inferior to self-made apostles because I'm a true apostle appointed by God Himself. Fifthly and finally, he was also their humble servant. He wasn't only their true apostle, he was also their humble servant. In verse 6, he refers to the issues that he has in public speaking. May that encourage you today. Those of you who have a fear of public speaking or feel like you fumble over your words, so did Paul. He was not skilled in speech. However, what does he have? He has knowledge. And he says that the fact that they had knowledge was made clear to them or made evident to them in all things. He was given the riches of the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ, and he was able to demonstrate that in the way that he lived among them those 18 months when he planted that church. So even though Paul wasn't a polished lecturer, he wasn't like you know some tenured professor somewhere who's able to give a very polished message, Paul, of course, was a zealous and faithful preacher of the Word of God. And let me tell you, you should take faithfulness over polish 10 out of 10 times. Take the faithfulness to the Word of God, faithfulness to God's people, loving God's people, caring for God's people, truly worrying about the context of the Word of God that you would teach it accurately. Take all of that over flash. Take all of that over showmanship every day of the week and twice on Sunday, right? Paul was a zealous, faithful preacher who, as he said in Galatians chapter 1, he said, I didn't learn my gospel from any man. I learned the gospel from Jesus Christ. And he proved it through his service, his teaching, and his constant, humble, sacrificial service among the Corinthians. So even with all of that, His pedigree with the Corinthians is quite long here. I mean, I I think giving him these five titles is pretty good, but we could probably give him more. Even with all of that, look at verse 1 again with me where he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. What he's setting them up for is that he's getting ready to play this commend yourself game. He doesn't want to do it, but he's getting ready to do it. The false apostles were there commending themselves, saying, look, I'm recommended as a teacher here by this guy, by this guy, by that guy. And look, I've done this and I've done that, and everyone should, you know, honor and respect me because of X, Y, Z. They're always commending themselves. And Paul says, I don't need to do that, but I wish you would bear with me here for a little foolishness. And he's about to do it. He's about to drop the hammer on the Corinthians. And he gets pretty punchy here in the coming verses. But he does call it a foolish game. He says, this is foolishness. But if you look down at verse 21 of the same chapter, that's where the foolishness really begins because we're not going to look at this today. We'll look at it here in a couple of weeks. But he says, look, I speak in foolishness. Here we go. Here's the fool's speech. And he begins to unload on them all of his uh, credentials that he would commend himself. I like the way David Garland put this in his commentary about what Paul is getting ready to do. Garland wrote, If he stoops to their level, meaning the false apostles, by boasting, he is a fool. But if he does not defend himself, he might lose the congregation to even greater fools. The battle lines are drawn between Paul, the weak but true apostle authorized by God, and the super but false apostles working under Satan. That is what's at stake as Paul writes this section of the letter. He pleads with them in verse 1 to bear with him. Would you bear with me? And this likely reflects how Paul thought that they thought about him. Oh, would you bear with me as you are, you're already doing? 
This one who is your servant, this one who is called by God, this one who has only loved you, who has only been faithful to you, would you please bear with me? You catch the sarcasm here? Would you bear with me, O Corinthians? Remember, he's their spiritual father in Christ. And how sad is it when a daughter feels like she has to bear with her father? That's the state of their relationship. So he greatly desires that they would remember who he truly is and how God had used him. Well, at this juncture, a serious fear is communicated that was meant to stir them up. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 together, and we'll spend the rest of our time considering these two verses. This is Paul's fear. Verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Well, he says, starting in verse 3, that he was afraid. The apostle of God, a man of faith, says, I'm afraid. And what's he afraid of? Well, we should catch that in this, he's admitting that he's not omniscient. He can't see the future. Paul has no crystal ball. Even though he's an apostle, he doesn't know what's going to happen. And he fears one of these possibilities has risen to the status of probability, that it's quite probable that this will happen. And the fear is the possibility of apostasy. It's when someone who is a professing Christian, someone who says, yes, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in the gospel of grace, then falls away. When that person reaches the point of saying, he's not my Savior anymore. In fact, I don't even know if there is a God. And this happens. It happens, in fact, quite a bit. We're told that in the end, apostasy will increase. And you can see it if you read the headlines of Christian news. There are many people out there deconstructing. There are many people out there denying the faith they once said they held to. And this is a a genuine fear that the apostle would have. It's a genuine fear that we would have. You know in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus' messages to the seven churches, five out of the seven churches Jesus rebuked. First century, churches that were planted by apostles, churches that were still receiving new revelation from Jesus, five out of seven were rebuked. You think those percentages have gotten any better 2,000 years on? So this is a genuine possibility. It's a genuine fear that Paul would have that a church would be led astray. We're seeing here that God's people can be willingly affected by Satan. What, what a frightening thought. God's people can be willing participants in being deceived by Satan to be affected by the enemy. This has massive implications, and it's reflected by the epic illustration that Paul uses in verse 3. This possibility of apostasy requires such, such an epic example when he goes back to the garden. He says, As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, he was afraid that their minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What happened in the garden? What happened back there in Genesis 3? Well, it's one of the most important events in world history, isn't it? It changed the course of mankind forever. What happened in the garden was that Satan deceived a bride. And here he is doing it again in Corinth. This bride who was betrothed to one husband. She's being deceived just as Eve, the bride of Adam, was deceived. Look down in verse 13 with me. Same chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 13. Look at Satan's work. It's through these false apostles. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, No wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. He says back in verse 3 that as the serpent deceived Eve with his craftiness, 
that he's afraid these false apostles, these servants of Satan, would be using the same playbook. Craftiness of words, smooth speech, polished lecturing, that they would use this craftiness to sweep them away. Craftiness in the New Testament is often linked to deceitful scheming. We see this in Ephesians 4, where Paul writes to that church and says, you're to be anchored in God, not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by craftiness, by deceitful scheming. Craftiness is deceit, it's deception, it's lying. Like those unbelieving Jews in Jesus' day, they were always trying to trap Him in His words, weren't they? And how did they do that? By craftiness with their words. They would come along and they would set Jesus up, so they thought. You really can't set Jesus up, okay? But they thought, we'll set Him up and we'll trap Him in His words. And what did he call those unbelieving Jews? He said, you are not children of Abraham. Your father is the devil. You are brood of vipers. Because Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And craftiness, deceitful scheming, it's lying. And his servants still do it to this day. This same power that was at work in the garden was at work in Corinth through the false apostles. And I think Paul was especially concerned for the Corinthians that Satan would get them. It's always a possibility, no matter where you are in this fallen earth, that you would be affected by Satan or one of his demons, that you would be touched by their effects in some way. But I think Paul had an especial, uh, a special concern for the Corinthians. Go back to chapter 2 with me, where he mentions Satan again. It's for 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. He was talking about this issue of church discipline with this with this uh, man who had repented. He was saying that they needed to forgive him and bring him back into the congregation. And listen to his reasoning. 2 Corinthians 2.10, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan." for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Satan is scheming. The devil is real. Our enemy is present. Now, he's not omnipresent, but he is present. He can't be in more places than one at a time, but he's active. He's prowling around, and he has his servants, both his demons and false teachers who infiltrate churches and do his bidding for him. They're crafty in their words, Paul says. And it's so important that we pay attention to the Word of God and test every teacher by the Word of God. That's how they will be found out. So the result of this, by these crafty servants of Satan being in the church, the result is that they were disrupting and dividing the body. They were disrupting the church. They were dividing the church. They were causing people to be led astray into heresy. Terrible, terrible results. The false apostles, you could say, had bewitched many who were in Corinth. This is language that Paul uses in Galatians. Turn with me just to the next book. It's probably just a page or two over to Galatians chapter 3. Turn forward in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3. The same thing was happening in Galatia where false teachers had come in and led them astray. And he uses some of the same language here when dealing with this church. How sad is it? Two books back to back in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians and Galatians, have to do with Paul urging a church to turn from false teaching. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. They were taken under a spell by the false teachers. Turn over to chapter 4 there in Galatians while you're there. Let's look at verses 15 to 20. He continues explaining this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, he asks them, Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you. Okay, Christians, look up. Heretics seek you. False teachers, servants of Satan, seek you. Satan, your enemy, it says in 1 Peter 5, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. 
So you see there's jealousy on both sides here. God, uh, the, Paul had a godly jealousy for the Corinthians. Well, there's also a jealousy by false teachers. They eagerly seek you. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 17, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. See how terrible this is? Blasphemy, heresy getting into the church, Satan getting a foothold in the body of Christ. How destructive, how damaging, how tragic. So terrible. Well, Paul says back in 2 Corinthians 11, that to their shame, verse 4, they were bearing all of this beautifully. At the end of verse 4, these false teachers coming with their false teaching, they were bearing it beautifully. Again, some sarcasm from Paul. They couldn't bear with Paul, and yet they're bearing with false teachers. They were tolerating heresy, but they were intolerant of God's apostle. Tragedy. It's like in counseling, when you're with someone, they're tolerating worldly ideas, they're tolerating the ways of the world, but they can't bear with the Word of God. Tragic. Absolutely tragic. They were critical of God's apostle. They were truly deceived. And the sad reality is, churches can be deceived. In MacArthur's commentary, he said it this way, the church's willingness to tolerate error in the name of unity, coupled with a lack of biblical and doctrinal knowledge, has crippled, crippled its ability to discern. As a result, it is too often easy prey for the ravenous, savage wolves who wound it and sap its power and testimony. It has happened to many churches, and it's a tragedy. Also, when believers are deceived in this way, they often go on to deceive unbelievers into thinking they are believers because they propagate the false teaching and it compounds. And what you have at the end of a generation or two is a whole group of people who are deceived into thinking that they're Christians, but they're not. I've had the opportunity to, in my life a couple of times, though I'm not a, a vet, to see some dogs who were really sick. And just recently I saw a dog with a tumor, had a large mass on its back, about the size of a football, it seemed to. It was very large, affected the way that it walked, and just seemed like it had to be absolutely painful. And you can tell by looking at a dog that has a large mass like that that something is wrong. There's a disease that is killing that dog, and it's evident outwardly. So often diseases aren't evident outwardly, but those are. And when a church is led astray from devotion to Christ, when a church is led astray from biblical doctrine, and goes off and chases false teaching or tolerates false teaching. That's a tumor in the church. That's cancer in the church. That will eat away at the life of a church and eventually kill it. Jesus can't tolerate that for much longer. And that's why he says to the churches in Revelation, I'll take your lamp away. I will take your light away. As a church body, we have to be utterly committed, ultimately devoted to the Word of God. Get all of our doctrine, all of our teaching about who Jesus is, about what the gospel is, has to be from the Bible. There are a lot of times when people ask about our church, like, what, what's different about your church? What do you got going on there? And I'll say, well, we've got the Bible and we've got Jesus and a bunch of weird people. <laughs> if you're looking for anything else, can't help you, all right? But we can give you those three things. We can deliver on those three, okay? Especially the third one. No, we can, we can deliver on all three of those, can't we? We've got the Word of God. We've got Jesus. And that's all we need. If we get led astray, it's tragedy. And here's the path the churches are to be on, that the Corinthians were to be on. Verse 3, I love the way this is phrased. Our minds should be devoted to the simplicity and purity of being pointed toward Christ, being devoted to Christ, being given over to Christ. The path that Christians are to be on is one of unhindered devotion to Jesus. Remember, we are that betrothed bride who's waiting for the return of the bridegroom. We are waiting. We are to be devoted to our husband in the waiting. We can't see him. He, he's, he's not visible to us. 
And we know He's returning. We know that one day we will see Him and we'll be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We will see Christ in the flesh. Though He is here in spirit, one day we will see Him in the flesh. And until that day, we have to remain devoted. Jesus is to be our all-consuming passion. Paul says this is simplicity, this is purity. It's making life all about Jesus Christ. Being single-minded as opposed to double-minded. Being single-minded, devoted to Jesus Christ as both Savior and God. This can be a real test of faith, can't it? If you were to ask yourself, if you were to question your own heart and examine yourself, is Jesus your all-consuming passion? I think that's a good place to start. Is Jesus your all-consuming passion? In 1 Corinthians 16, at the end of that letter, listen to the way Paul phrased it there. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then he says, Maranatha, which means come quickly, Lord Jesus. If anyone does not love the Lord, Jesus, he's to be accursed. And in this letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he says, the love of Christ controls us. That's simplicity, that's purity, that's single-mindedness, that's devotion to Jesus, to be controlled by the love of Jesus Christ. To have His death and His resurrection mean everything to you, that it would affect all of life. Well, in addition to a personal test that we can find like that right here, He also gives them a test to apply to all teachers. So verse 4 is where I want to finish up considering the test that we can apply to any of, those, any of those who come and preach and seek to lead us astray. Let me read it again, verse 4. If one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He gives them three categories of filtering out false teachers. How can you filter out poisonous heresy in the church or even in your own mind? How can you do that? Well, Paul says these people will come and they will preach just as Paul did. Paul went to them. Paul preached to them. These people will do it in the same way. And there are three categories. What Jesus are they preaching? What spirit are they giving? And what gospel are they presenting? Let's start with the real Jesus versus another Jesus. He says, one coming preaching another Jesus. You may notice as you run your eyes over that verse, it says another for Jesus, at least in the New American Standard, another Jesus, but then for spirit and gospel, it says different. Another Jesus, but a different spirit and a different gospel. That's because these are different Greek words. These are distinct Greek words. And this first word, this first adjective that's put before Jesus that means another, means another of the same kind. Not one that's completely different, but another of the same kind. That's what Paul has in view here. So these false teachers probably taught about Jesus of Nazareth, the, one, the Jesus that everybody seemed to know there in the first century world. But he was different in some sense. He was another of the same kind. You can think of all the different apples that exist. Sometimes you go to the grocery store and there are a million different types of apples. And if you don't have a conviction about which one you want, it can be a moment of paralysis by analysis. As you're looking and Googling what on earth is a Macintosh apple or this apple or whatever. Okay? Or uh, even among different types of dogs. There, there are Labradors, but there are many different types of Labradors. Okay? So it's one of the same, uh, it's of the same kind, but it's another of the same kind. Someone teaching another Jesus. So even though they taught about Jesus of Nazareth, they adjusted something. How big of a deal is it if you're teaching about the same Jesus who walked there in the Middle East, who lived that life, but you just adjust a little bit? How big of a deal is that? Massive, okay? I was hoping that you would all say massive in unison, but that's okay. Uh, next time. Uh, that they, they were adjusting. Even just a little bit, it was a big deal. They were denying something of the person of Jesus or denying something of the work of Jesus. Perhaps they emphasized His humanity to the detriment of His deity. Perhaps they taught something different about His 
humanity. There were many false teachers at that time saying that Jesus didn't have a real body. He was just a ghost. Perhaps they were diminishing his work, emphasizing certain aspects of what Jesus did and not talking about other things. Well, no matter what you're doing, if you're adding to or taking away from the person and work of Jesus, it's a denial of Jesus. Even if you think it's a small thing, even if you think it's just a a minor tweak, a minor adjustment, it's a massive deal because Jesus is God, and you don't mess with God. You don't adjust who God is. Well, we learn later on in the same chapter that the false apostles appear to have been Jews. Down in verse 21, Paul starts asking these rhetorical questions about them, and he says, uh, verse 22, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So it seems as though these people are of Israelite descent. They are Jews by birth. Therefore, it's likely for us to conclude here that what they were teaching, what they were denying about Jesus was grace, that they were rejecting His one act of righteousness, His death and resurrection in our place for our sins as enough to save us, but instead they were emphasizing law to them. It seems to be the case. Now make no doubt about it, Christ did bring the law to bear on people's lives, didn't He? You think of uh, His interaction with the rich young ruler? He rattled off the Ten Commandments to Him. He emphasized the law to the rich young ruler. Remember when Jesus summed up the two greatest things? The two greatest commands, to love God and to love your neighbor. Well, that's a reference back to the law of Moses. He did teach law. He emphasized law at certain points. But also be clear about this. Jesus never taught that a person is made right with God through obedience to the law. In fact, the law was presented to break people down. The law was put before people so they could, you could look at them and say, how are you doing with that? Don't lie. Okay, well, we already messed up. No, no sense going off and listing the other 612 commands. First one, blew it. You can't make yourself right with God through obedience. You can't make yourself right with God through your own effort. Jesus did emphasize law, but He did so to set them up for grace. That as a person feels the weight of his sin, as a person feels, feels the weight of rebelling against the holy, eternal Creator, He would appeal outside of himself for salvation. Well, these false apostles exalted the work of man and demoted the work of Christ. And this still happens today when people preach another Jesus. You'll often know that because they're not going to be preaching grace through faith. They're going to be preaching something else. And something else to point out here too is that false teachers always have to change Jesus. You can't take Jesus as He is. You can't take His teaching, you can't take His work as it is in the Bible if you're going to be adjusting stuff. you got to change Jesus. you got to adjust who He is so you can therefore teach another gospel. Well, the second test is this different spirit. He says, if someone comes preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, Now, here the adjective different really does mean truly different. So instead of different types of Labradors or something like that that are both dogs, we're talking about dogs versus cats or apples and oranges. If someone preaches a totally different spirit or if you receive a different spirit. I don't think Paul here is speaking of the Holy Spirit directly. I don't think that's what's in view. So I I think it's right that our, at least the New American Standard here, didn't capitalize spirit in this verse. But I do believe he's talking about the result of the teaching and the Holy Spirit is involved with that. Consider these cross-references. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, the apostle writing to that church said, You have not received a spirit, lowercase s, of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You know what false teachers will do? They will lead you into slavery. They they will not lead you into a spirit of adoption by grace through faith, but they'll lead you into slavery. There's 1 Timothy chapter 4, this promise that was given. 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, because of these realities, Christians are encouraged to test the spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So if someone comes along and you receive a different spirit, not a spirit of adoption, not a spirit of freedom, not a spirit of peace, not a spirit of hope, not a spirit of grace, not a spirit of faith, but a spirit of slavery, a spirit of false teaching that's demonic, that leads to immorality, we are to absolutely reject that teaching. And I trust that you can see how that's directly connected to the Jesus that they're preaching. These are connected. Good teaching, of course, results in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, all of those great qualities that we get by the power of God. But what does heresy give us? The works of the flesh, pridefulness, demonic behavior. The third test, finally, the test of Jesus, the test of the Spirit, and then the test of the gospel. Paul says if these people are preaching a different gospel, he tells them you bear this beautifully, but of course the implication is you are not to bear this beautifully. Do you know that there's a real gospel and then there's a different gospel? There's true good news, and then there's false good news. There is the message of salvation, and then there's a message that masquerades as a message of salvation. There's the truth, and then there are lies. What do you get when you take another Jesus and you add to it a different spirit? You get a different gospel, don't you? You get a totally different gospel. And that's not good news, it's bad news. Think about how this works in real-world scenarios. Roman Catholic Church, in many ways, they get a lot of things right. They emphasize the deity of Jesus, they get the Trinity right, that's all good. But So in what way are they preaching another Jesus? Well, they put a lot of emphasis on His earthly mother, don't they? They, they, they tend to, to throw a little attention in her direction. That she was sinless, that she was perfect, that she had perpetual virginity, that she was chosen by God because of her perfection, that we can pray to her, that she can intercede for us. So that's another Jesus now, isn't it? It's another spirit. It's a different spirit. Think about the LDS gospel. What's the gospel of Mormonism? Well, let's start with the person of Jesus. He's not eternal God, Lord, creator of all things. He's your brother. He's your older brother. That's a reduction of the person of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus has now been reduced. And their gospel is a different gospel. Their gospel is one of slavery, not of freedom. Their gospel is one of works, not of grace. What about the Jehovah's Witnesses? And who, what's their other Jesus? Well, they teach that Jesus was actually Michael the archangel and that he didn't die on a cross, he died on a stake. And he did so so that ultimately a select number of people, the 144,000, if they're good enough, one, sometime after they die, they'll find out they can make it to heaven. Different Jesus, different gospel. That's not the gospel that we get from the Bible. That's not the message that's freely given to all people. Come, drink without cost. Come to the well of life, drink of, of living water. That's not the message of Jesus. He's the one you sinned against. He's the God you offended and yet, He came here out of love, and He died for you in your place for your sins, rising again on the third day, that through faith alone, no work of your own, nothing being brought to the table to add to His work, but that you would recognize that what He did was full and complete, and it's free to you, that you would be saved by His grace on the basis of His work, having faith alone in Jesus Christ. So much is at stake because people who preach a false gospel are accursed, and those who believe that false gospel are cursed with them. In Galatians 1.8, Paul said this even about himself. He said to this church that even we or an angel from heaven, if we preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. If someone comes along and says, yeah, I know, you've heard about that grace stuff, 
But here's the real deal. Let me point you to this Jesus. Let me give you this spirit and let me enslave you to this bad news. That person is accursed. And anyone who goes with them will suffer the same fate. So we have to be about the Bible and Jesus, don't we? Just like water can't exist without hydrogen and oxygen, we need the Word of God, we need the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we will have rivers of living water flowing from us. If you've never believed in the gospel, if you've never truly believed, if you've not confessed your sins and asked God to forgive you, if you've never asked God for the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, Today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day. You don't have to leave your seat. We don't have to go to a special prayer closet. We don't even have one of those, okay? We've got closets, but not a special closet. Now, you don't have to go to a specific place. You don't have to sign up and jump through hoops and go through a class or put your name on a card or give a certain amount or get baptized or take communion. None of that is a prerequisite for salvation. You can be saved today coming to Jesus as the filthy sinner you are and saying, I can't clean myself, I can't fix myself, I'm broken, I'm defiled, on the basis of Jesus Christ, Lord, take me, and He will. That is good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have done this for us because You love us. You don't have to love us, You don't need us, but You want us in Your love. And we ask, Lord, for those who perhaps just now have realized today is the day of their salvation, that that seed that's been planted would grow to bear much fruit. Help us to come alongside those people and help them to figure out the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And for those of us who have been Christians, those of us who have claimed the name of Jesus for so long, help us, Lord, to stay focused. This world is filled with toils, snares, and devils. Lord, we need your strength. We need your power to stay focused on Jesus. Help us to keep him on the throne in all that we think and say and do, that we, not, we, we would not despise the purchasing of our souls through his blood, but that we would totally embrace this relationship we have with you, that you own us through the person and work of Christ and that all of life is for you. All of life is for Jesus. God, we need your help for your glory. We want to honor you. Help us to walk by faith, not by sight, and to make much of Jesus in all of life. We ask for your help in these things in his name. Amen.